we are trained, you and I, to think big. One of the first skills we develop is the skill to measure. When we're born in the world, someone asks, how big is he? How big is she? How much did she weigh? How long is he or she? The first thing we want to know is how big a person is when that person is born. And we never stop measuring when we haven't seen one, someone for a long time and that child is growing up. How tall is he now? How much does she weigh? And then a courtship develops. He asked her to marry him. And now she sports a diamond on her finger. How big is the diamond? We can't wait to see the diamond to see how big it is. And to make a judgment when we've seen how large it is. And the wedding takes place. How big a wedding was it? How many bridesmaids? How many were there for the wedding? College is over. The first job. What does it pay? How big a job is it? How important is the job? And finally, life ends. How large a state was left. And a person never gets out of being measured from the time that the person is born until the time that the person dies. But what a poor job of measuring we do. It's always how big, how impressive, even the advertiser knows that, and everything's bigger and better and newer. You can't buy a small tube of toothpaste. The smallest tube is large, and then it goes on from there. To economy, super, and family sizes. We don't dare use the word small. Everything's got to begin with being large and larger and largest. Always measuring. I wonder if the life of Jesus had been measured by these standards, what we would have discovered. A little child born in a Bethlehem, in a manger in Bethlehem. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John didn't even bother to tell us how much he weighed, how long he was. How much did he earn? In his lifetime, he could have been anything he wanted to be. Of course he could. He was a carpenter. One day someone came to him wanting to be one of his disciples and he said, Do you know what sacrifice you have to make? Look at me. I don't have a home to live in. Foxes have their burrows and birds have their nests. I don't have a home in which to live. When he died, all he possessed was one robe. And they gambled it away. And he was placed in a borrowed grave. 
by the standards we use in measuring one another. Here is history's greatest failure. Or look at John Wesley, if Christ is beyond our ability to comprehend by these terms of measurement. John Wesley? Measure the success by his missionary enterprise in Georgia. Ended up by being attacked by two women with a pair of scissors. Returned to England feeling that all was lost. When John Wesley died, he had two silver spoons with which to eat his food. He said in his journal that if he died with more than that, he would feel like he had robbed God. And he set aside enough coins to go out at the time of his death and find men who were capable of carrying his casket to the grave, men who didn't have any livelihood, pay them to carry it so they'd have a little bit of money to buy food. The suit that he wore on horseback. And that was it. A successful life. In the course of his lifetime, he earned a fortune that none of us would ever achieve, probably. He wrote volumes that sold in the book place. He earned money that earned money beyond that. And he gave, as advice to us, to us Earn all you can. He believed in earning money. Save all you can. And use all you can. John Wesley was a medical doctor equal to any practicing doctor of his day. He wrote a medical journal. One that was one of the most profound and enlightened medical journals of his day. He translated the Bible from its original tongue into English, wrote commentaries, and died with just enough money to pay strong men to carry his body to the grave. If we were to measure his life by the standards with which we measure one another, he was the second greatest failure of all time. But we think big. We've all become excited these past few weeks reading about the new telescope that's being sent up into space to open up vistas never opened to us before. I can't wait to see what that telescope discovers out there in space, reaching to places that the eye has never gone, revealing worlds that we didn't know were out there, and interpreting what we've seen with greater clarity than ever before. It fascinates me no end. But every time I think of such power of looking into space, I'm reminded of what I heard William Pollard say about 20 years ago. Many of you may know, not know who William Pollard is. He was one of the nuclear physicists who developed the atom bomb at Oak Ridge. And realizing what he had unleashed became an Episcopal priest and served in that capacity along with his profession through the years of his active life. He said the greatest discoveries that are to come to mankind 
will come under the microscope. The world under the microscope is far more formidable than the world in outer space. And we've come to see that to a great extent. We talk about the, about the great powers of nature unleashed upon us, hurricanes, earthquakes, lightning, floods. These are awesome. Even the nuclear explosions that are constantly revealed on the sun of hydrogen explosions constantly. But the most powerful force in the world is under the microscope. Smaller than a vac bacteria can be seen only under an electron microscope. The most formidable force of destruction in the world is the AIDS virus. All it has to do is to attach itself to one cell in our body and we're totally destroyed. We can fight off wild animals, beasts of the, of the jungle. We can recover from gunshot wounds, but that one thing that is deadliest above all else is the power of a single virus so small we can't even see it except under an electron microscope. We've got to start shrinking our thinking. Quit thinking big and start thinking small. Jesus thought small. He talked about one solitary lamb lost from the fold. He talked about one single coin that had been lost. He talked about one small speck in a person's eye. And he talked about a single mustard seed. Here is where the power of change is, where it takes place. I have a book that was given to me 10, 15 years ago when I was sitting in someone's home and discovered on his bookshelf a book on the theory of relativity by Albert Einstein, and I was so impressed. I said, do you really understand the theory of relativity? And he said, I do now. Because a man somewhere between man and Einstein has taken what he could understand and put it into words that I could understand. He reduced it to the size of my mind and he gave me the book, and it's on my bookshelf now. When they're so large we can't comprehend them, then we are excused from facing them. All of the problems in the world that are so overwhelming, because we can't reduce them to our size, we simply look upon them and deplore them and think that nothing can be done about them. It's too big a job for me to do. And we just come to live with those things that are too big to grapple with. But Jesus brought them down to our size so that we could handle them. Not possibilities. Jesus never reduced the possibility. And we ought never to reduce a possibility either. 
the greater the possibilities, the greater the dreams, then the more we are in line with the mind and heart of Christ. Nothing is impossible when God is working with us toward that end. And so Jesus didn't give us easy tasks to do. He said, move mountains. He said, go to all the world. He said, seek the largest pearl. These are possibilities. We must keep possibilities great, but we must reduce realities to our size. We must come to see that we can change ourselves only one day at a time. Some people got the idea that you become a Christian overnight. Some people think that God gives us Christian perfection only in the blinking of an eye or the dropping of a drop of water. Doesn't come that way. The difference between a person who has never accepted Christ and the person who has is that the person who has accepted Christ now has begun a journey. It doesn't mean he's already come to journey's end. And each of us who is ordained in the United Methodist Church at the moment of our ordination is asked, will you go on to Christian perfection the question is never asked, are you perfect? Will you go on to Christian perfection? And the same question is unexpressedly given to everyone who becomes a Christian. Will you from this moment grow toward Christian perfection? And how do we do it? A day at a time. We don't become spiritually mature overnight any more than we can go to school and become educated overnight. Little boy attending school for the first time rushed into the house and said, Mom, quick, give me the comics. I want to read them. You don't learn to read by going to one session of school. It's a lifelong venture, but it's accomplished one day at a time. And when we put it off to a better time, then we never get started. The goals ought not to be so large that we can't hold on to them. We let them grow as we gather to ourselves the smaller goals that we can reach. The reality is you can't change humanity except by one person at a time. Sigmund Romberg wrote, Start me with ten who are stout-hearted men, and I'll soon give you ten thousand more. There's the secret. One on one. Frank Laubach attacked illiteracy that way. One person teach one person to read. If we were to take on that responsibility, one caretaker for one other, the whole world will be revolutionized. And we sing, let there be peace on earth. And let it begin with me. It's the only place it can be. There's 
a gospel song that was printed in songbooks of years gone by. I don't know if it's in print in any songbook now, but I can remember hearing it as a child. Brighten the corner where you are. It's good theology. That's all we can brighten. We can lament all that's happening in Russia, Latvia, Czechoslovakia, East Germany. We can pour to great depths over the plight of peoples around the world. But it doesn't do any good until we brighten the little bit of ground where we live. And the light will spread as others light their little bit of earth. The only way we can change humanity is one person at a time. And that's bite-sized. We can handle that. And that's the place where God calls us to serve. It's a matter of reality that we can only change society by being God's instrument. When my son graduated from Emory University, he was elected to the Senior Honor Society. The Senior Honor Society is the highest honor that can come to a student at Emory University. These persons are chosen on the basis of those persons who best reflect the qualities of the institution, the philosophy of the institution, who more ideally reflected what the university wants its students to be when they graduate of any other. It's a high honor to be elected to the Senior Honor Society. It's the oldest organization on campus dating back to the time of its beginning. And within that group, all the great traditions of the university are held. And so it was a great honor for my son, Wes, when he was elected to the Senior Honor Society. There were seven elected that year. When they graduated, they made a pact. Seven years from now, on the seventh month and the seventh day and the seventh hour, we'll meet here on the steps of the administration building and see what's happening to us. Now, no notice was to be given of that meeting. It was left up to each one of them to be there seven years later on the seventh month and the seventh day at seven o'clock in the evening. Wesley came through Newport on his way to Atlanta for that tryst. We wondered if anybody would be there. Of the seven, five were present. One of these had graduated from Emory with the highest honor accorded any individual. It was a person so named at graduation who in the viewpoint of the university is the most outstanding student of all graduates. This particular person was received a full scholarship at Harvard University and he went to Harvard University to study law. There was a runner-up for that honor. He was going to medical school at Washington University in St. Louis. He was Wesley's best friend. They made a pact. They would both go to Emory to medical school together so they could continue their education that they'd enjoyed. 
Each one went on to graduate school. And now seven years had passed and they met on the administration steps. The young black man who had graduated with the highest honor of the university, who had gone to Harvard Law School, graduated with honors from Harvard Law School, he was offered a position in the greatest cities of the nation with the most prestigious law firms. You know that for a fact. Anyone who graduates with honors from Harvard Law School and who graduated from a prestigious university like Emory University with the highest honor of any graduate can go anywhere he wants to go at any price. He went to Harlem. He opened up a storefront law office to help the people who were oppressed. And he took a teaching position in the school in Harlem where he could teach growing boys and girls how to appreciate law and to change their lives through law. Another of these had graduated from Emory Medical School with Wesley. He was the runner-up for the highest honor. He could have gone to any medical firm in Atlanta or elsewhere with his prestigious medical degree. He went into public health. He wanted to take care of the people who couldn't afford a doctor. Another of these went to seminary. That person was absent that day and they didn't know really what had happened, but they did know that this person went to seminary to become a minister. And then there was the one who went to medical school and on graduation from medical school went to Memphis, Tennessee. He went to Emory Medical School along with the others, a prestigious medical school. But on graduation from medical school and having finished his residency, he went to Memphis, Tennessee and opened up a clinic on his own. His life was featured in the latest issue of the Tennessee Magazine. There his picture was with his stethoscope around his neck. He was being honored as one of the outstanding leaders of Tennessee. In the three years since he opened his clinic in Memphis, he had served over 6,800 people who were either without medical insurance or underinsured. He had 400 volunteers in his clinic going out into the places where there would be no medical services otherwise. And there were other stories to be told. These were the honor students members of the Senior Honor Society who could have gone anywhere and done anything they chose. And this is what they're doing in the ghetto of New York, in the impoverished sections of Memphis, in the free clinics of Atlanta, and in some little country pulpit somewhere they're changing society. 
by being God's instruments. We've got to learn how to measure the right way. Now this. We start thinking big from the moment that we're born. But the only real measure is the measure by which the life of Christ was measured when he was a 12-year-old boy and he increased in stature, in wisdom, and in favor with God and in favor with his fellow men. That's bringing it down to our size. We shrink big thinking down to where we can use it to make a difference. Amen.